0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 279 of So You Want To Be A Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find lots of writing courses and a fantastic, vibrant writing community. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series. And Alison has recently been at Bluesfest. How was that, Al? How were the... You know Portaloose.
1: What happened to how are you Al? <laughs> like
0: I was I was poised
1: for that and then you've gone all right, straight all right, to, right. I'll d- I'll then you've again.
0: gone straight to Port <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to mix it up but since okay. that's you know stressing what? you out how are you Al?
1: Well, I'm, I'm very well, thank you, Valerie. I'm actually beyond a little bit beyond fair to middling. It's the first day of the school term. Yeah, yeah. Everybody cheer. We Yay. have survived the school holidays once Yay. again. Yay. Yeah. So I'm that and I'm also like I, I did really have a very, very good time despite the Portaloos at Bluesfest.
0: Oh, so they weren't good.
1: Well, they're never good, Val. Like let's face it, like you don't go Mm. for the Portaloos, do you? Like you're not there thinking, you know, and I'm not actually ticking them off. I'm not writing reviews about them. You just go and you do your thing, don't you? (laughs) I was actually more focused on the bands and also on the Friday that we were there, a little bit focused on the rain because there was some rain. But there's always rain at Blues Fest apparently and you just get into it. There's some great outfits there and uh, boots were most assuredly the – Footwear of choice. There was a lot of gum boots, welly boots, Ah. blundstones of all manner shapes and sizes. It was yeah, it was quite funny. The boys had a very entertaining time just you know on their on boot watch just to see who was doing what with the boots.
0: Nice. Now I know you might say that you weren't writing about the Portaloos, but I happen to know that one of our listeners and maybe she wants to pipe up in the Facebook group. Uh, If you want to identify yourself, and by the way, if you're not in the Facebook group, just search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community and request to join on Facebook. It's free and we love chatting to each other. But I know that one of our listeners, she actually does write about toilets. What? On her blog. Yes, (laughs) she really does. So I'll leave it to her. Now there's a specialist subject. No, she writes about I think like four things or three things and one of them is toilets.
1: Okay. I really hope she does out herself in the group because I would like to to see more of this blog. It sounds very entertaining.
0: <laughs> yes. So if you do want to out yourself, let us know. And I'm sure that lots of the uh, your fellow listeners would like to uh, read about your descriptions. All right. But apart from that and apart from Blues Fest, what else has been happening? I suppose you haven't had a lot of opportunity to do a lot of writing when you've been out on family holidays.
1: Oh, look, I've done not one single iota of writing. And you know what? I have to say um, the builder and I were having a conversation last night about this over a Byron Bay lager. We were extending the holiday as far as we possibly could by bringing back the beer and we we got given some, um, you know, some stubby coolers, you know, the little things that you put around your beer technical. Yeah, so we got given a couple of Blues Fest ones of those. So we were sitting there with our Blues Fest stubby coolers um, just discussing the fact that you don't really even understand how much you need a total break until you have one. Um, Mm -hmm. So the house that we stayed in up at um, Lennox Head had no Wi-Fi and no, it was in a mobile black spot, so you could could oh, hardly no. even get, yeah, I know, it was like being in a black hole for five days, um, which was actually really, really, really good. But I have a very funny photo of uh, Bookboy standing on the mailbox out the front of the house with his arm in the air trying to get enough reception <laughs> to send a text message to his friend or whatever he was doing, but it was quite funny. Um, but yeah, it was just good. It was a great, it was a really good total break. We were up at the beach, we were at Lennox Head, so we, you know, we did heaps of walks on the beach we had it was warm enough to swim still um so we did all of that kind of stuff and you just um so we just really like just you know bailed out basically for um you know five to ten days and we've all come back just so much more refreshed than if we had you know it was yeah it was it was actually really good so no I wrote not a single thing however I did just absorb a lot of stuff I absorbed a lot of stuff, which I'm sure will come out, you know, in writing, in ideas, in different things that I do um, over the next few months. Did because you read it was a just... book
0: if you had no one? Oh, I read several read... books. Okay.
1: I read several books. And I did that whole thing that you do, you know, when you go to the holiday house. So I took one book with me. And what I took with me was actually um, one of our—I'm th- sh- I'm pretty sure she's in our community—an author named Maya. I think it's Linell. L. Oh, yeah. It's M A Y A L so I N E L. So I received a proof copy of her new book, which is called well, first novel, debut novel. Hello, um, mm-hmm. called Wildflower Ridge. So I took that with me. So that was oh, the nice. book I took with me because I thought, great, you know, it's a—it's a good sort of holiday read. I'll take that. I read that, and then I got to the holiday house, and of course they have the bookshelf in the holiday house, right? Which mm-hmm. is always the stuff that everyone else has left behind or yes. whatever. So I put uh, once I finished Maya's book, I put it on the shelf, and I remove one. So I've left her book there. I've read several books off the shelves. You know, that's how holiday ha- holiday house libraries work.
0: Yes, mm. nice. So I've done that. It was good. Any stand out apart from you it know, was the my- well,
1: it was the holiday house library so you know okay. <laughs> um i read i did read a Philippa gregory that i hadn't read i do really enjoy her um historical fiction so i read uh, i read one of hers um which was really good but yeah it was just it was yeah i don't to be honest with you i didn't remember i was just consuming words as you do nice
0: well yeah. i read a page turner oh, what would you read what oh, did you read it was so good it's called bad blood by john carryru that's C-A-R-R-E-Y-R-O-U, and uh, it was gripping. I could not put this book down. It's basically an account of um, Elizabeth Holmes, who is the founder and CEO of a biotech startup called Theranos, who promised the world and you know many high-profile investors and politicians that she was revolutionizing the blood testing industry. And it is a, an example of that truth is stranger than fiction, because someone from the Wall Street Journal, well, John Carreyrou, then spent three and a half years researching, interviewing, and putting this putting together this incredible book that is literally like a thriller, like a page turner, and uh, it's it's incredibly well written. Even though you think, oh, reading about a biotech startup might not be the most interesting thing on earth, mm. it is. Absolutely brilliant, and it, it basically accounts for her fall from grace. She, you know, was worth billions like literally billions and Theranos is now worth zero. Um, Rupert Murdoch had invested 125 million dollars into it, and after all of her lies, deception, and fraud came out, he sold his 125 million dollars worth of shares back to the company for one dollar, so that he could write that off. Um, countless other investors, high-profile investors, um, lost in the tens of millions of dollars. Like people were investing 30 million, 50 million, and so on. They were basically lying about their cash flow projections um, or, to put it mildly, were wildly optimistic to the point of being delusional. But I think right now, as in this week, I believe, the court case is going on. Um, her and her COO are being uh, charged criminally. Um And it would be interesting to see what happens because she was this wonderkind of the uh, startup industry because I think she's currently only 32 or whatever. And she started the company maybe 12 years ago or or 10 years ago and um, was hailed as as the next Steve Jobs. She um, loved Steve Jobs so much she used to always dress in black turtlenecks just like him. (laughs) Oh, right, <laughs> and um but you know you have to actually read the book for it to you you have to read it to 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 your jaw is on the ground for the entire period and the annoying thing is I freaking can't get my reading glasses to work and I even went to the chemist yesterday to try out all the different types of reading glasses okay so, and sorry that's just um my that, frustration. Was a, that was sideline. Yeah, yeah sideline, yeah. sideline. Yeah. Side <laughs> because I brackets. wanted to devour this book so much. Anyway, yeah. it it's highly recommended. I think that this is a um, – there's a documentary that now goes with it called The Inventor, uh, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. But this book was a uh, page-turner, absolute page-turner. Wow. So that's a ringing endorsement. Yeah, look at that. You just like went for it. I went mean, I mean, it. you must really like it
1: because you were very passionate there.
0: Oh, yeah, it was so good. I really excellent. actually like the, the book of the author that we are going to be interviewing this episode as well. But before we do that, let's go on to some links. I know that you have an uh, excellent link from the Jane Friedman blog. I do have an excellent link from the Jane
1: Friedman blog. It is um, two – it's called Beyond Good Writing, Two Literary Agents Discuss What Matters Most. So it's two literary agents from the US talking about why they they choose clients, Mm. basically why they choose your manuscript and, you know, obviously – both of them stay upfront that it's about the writing. You know, the writing has to speak to them. But are there other things that play a factor? Because I think a lot of, um, particularly, you know, when you when you're submitting and you're sort of you're out there querying and stuff like that, you kind of start to wonder what is it that makes people take you on. Um, mm. There's, it's interesting because I've been following a hashtag on Twitter um, over the last couple of months, and it's the hashtag writing community, and it's mm. a very supportive group of people who are you know um supporting each other and talking to each other and it's a very sort of you know it's a great supportive um area but there's a bit of a a thing going on there at the moment that I'm watching with great interest where they will be like they're going I'm going on submission I'm about to query you know I need at least a thousand followers before I can um query you know you need to follow me and I'll follow you back and there's all this kind of stuff which is which is fine whatever like do what you have to do um but I think one of the interesting things about it when you actually talk to agents um, and you actually talk to publishers and we we have done this. Like if you go back over our interviews over many, many years now, when we talk to agents and we talk to publishers and we talk to editors, we ask those questions. Like we are asking them, does the follow account matter? Yeah. You know, all of this sort of stuff. Does the platform matter? Now, the platform does matter. Like they do talk about the fact that once they sign somebody, they will get them started on on Facebook, on Twitter, on on having a presence, on on building a profile. But Mm. every single one of them has also said right from the start, for the most part, that the number that you have when you send out your manuscript is not what makes them decide whether to sign you or not. Mm. That number is not the key to getting your manuscript signed up. The book Mm. is the key, always the key. If you have Um, A platform as well then obviously they are going to view you in in a more favorable light but one of the things that they say in this actual post on the Jane Friedman site both of these agents say one of the most important things about whether they choose to sign you or not is whether they can work with you yes and I think that that is something that so many people overlook it's the relationship that you have with your agent whether you're on the same page about the kinds of things that you want your manuscript to do, whether you're on the same page about whether or not, um, you know, to send your manuscript to the same sorts of publishers, whether you are willing to take feedback like whether or not that agent's going to come back to you and say, look, I really think that this has got legs, but what I, what I think you need to do is rework the middle of your manuscript or Mm. take this scene out, or do you really need this character? Or you've started in the wrong place. If you are willing to take that kind of feedback, go away and actively do something with it, as opposed to just sort of going, no. My, my word is my art and I cannot change a thing, um, which I would not recommend, generally yeah. speaking, um, you know, that kind of stuff, whether or not you can work with somebody uh, mm. is a very, very important aspect of whether or not an agent will sign you. And I think that always, always, always the thing to keep in mind with your agent is that it's a professional relationship. It's not yeah. your mum, it's no. not your friend it's none of those things it's a professional relationship and it has to remain as such like you might get on like a house on fire with your agent which is a brilliant thing um, but always at the heart of it it's a professional relationship and something I would say over experience is that you know agents like there's different types there are some who are a business agent who basically are not going to give you editorial in, uh, feedback mm. they are going to basically take your thing and they are going to go can I sell this Mm. If I sell this, where can I sell this? And off they will go with it. Um, they will be like, you know, where can we get the rights going? And then you've got other agents who want to have more input into the into the thing that goes out. They want to help you make it into the best possible thing that they think that they can sell to someone in particular. Um, and you need to decide what kind of agent you want before you sort of do this. You know, have a look at what kind of thing this agent is offering you. So if you come, if an agent comes back to you and says, I really want to represent you, have some questions. Don't yeah. just be like, Yay. I'm here, I've done it because I get that feeling, you know, I understand it, I've been there. Um, but have an idea of what it is that you want an agent to do for you beyond sell my manuscript to the nearest publisher. So mm-hmm. I think these are all things that need to be thought about and I think that this post that Jane Friedman has here, this question, you know, it's a Q&A, you know, what are we looking for, what's a good manuscript, how do I, you know, how am I going to do this? Um, I think that it's really worth having a look at and thinking about the kind of agent relationship that you would like to have um, as you go forward.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, we'll put the link in the show notes, which you can find at au. but it is an excellent post. So we also have a link from Echo Publishing because they're accepting open submissions. That's right, echopublishing.com.au is open to unsolicited submissions,
1: so to speak, for one week only. So it's until Friday, Friday the 3rd of May. So if you're listening to this down the track, um, obviously you've missed the window, but they do actually mm-hmm. open about every, approximately every quarter for um, – for submissions and you can uh if you basically the the best way to make sure that you that you know when submissions open for these publishing companies is to follow them on social media follow the facebook page or follow the twitter because that's what that's when you'll see what's actually going on Um, they have a very good i'll put the link in the show notes but it's echo publishing.com.au forward slash submissions uh, they have a good uh, page on their website which explains exactly what it is that they are looking for, how to prepare your manuscript for submission, what to submit, um, but basically they, so they are looking um, at this stage for fiction and narrative non-fiction for an adult or crossover audience. They want to publish Australian authors, but they want the books to have global appeal as they work very closely with their UK sister imprints. So have a look at the website. And and this, I guess, is the other thing to think about. Um, When you're submitting a manuscript, you've always got to have a look at the guidelines, have a look at what they're looking for, think about whether or not this is a good fit for what you're, you know, what you're trying to do with your manuscript. And then, you know what, have a crack. Go for it.
0: Absolutely, and you need to send in a brief covering letter, no more than one page, a synopsis, including the total word count, a brief biographical note on the author, well, that's yourself. For fiction, you have to send the full manuscript. For nonfiction, send the full manuscript or the first 10,000 words of the manuscript. So have a go. Why not? Mm, If you've got something ready to go, this is your opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, a certain author we know <laughs> 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 who could that possibly be, I wonder? I think maybe her name is A. L. Tate. Oh gosh, her? <laughs> She's amazing. Well, every year Demix published the top fifty-one kids' books. So it's the best 51 books to help get kids reading as voted by Dimmick's book lovers. And a certain author we know, A.L. Tate, <laughs> is, a. L. Tate. On, is on the list and we all need to go vote for her because yes. she's awesome. <laughs> well, she would love your
1: votes. Um, And so we're going to put the link in the show notes. It's at dimmicks.com.au forward slash voting forward slash kids top 51. Um, but – you will need, because there's a whole bunch of covers on the, on the website, um, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, A.L. Tate is not one of them yet, so you'll have to scroll down past all of those covers and where it says, got a favourite, not on our list, search for it here, put in Race to the End of the World, the Mapmaker Chronicles, or the Book of Secrets. Adaband Cipher, or both. You can vote for up to ten, so you don't have to use up all your votes on Al Tate. You can actually vote for other Australian authors as well. But I know that Al Tate would be entirely grateful if you would vote for one of her books. In fact, she would love you forever.
0: Fantastic. All right. Thank you. So now uh, let's move on to a competition this week. Yes. We've got ten double passes to Long Shot, which is in cinemas from the second of May. Fred Flasky, played by Seth Rogen, is a gifted and free-spirited journalist who has a knack for getting into trouble. Charlotte Field, who of course is Charlize Theron, is one of the most influential women in the world, a smart, sophisticated politician. When Fred unexpectedly unexpectedly runs into Charlotte, he realises she was his former babysitter and childhood crush. Charlotte decides to run for the presidency and impulsively hires Fred as her speechwriter. Red is unprepared for her glamorous and high-stakes lifestyle. However, sparks fly as their chemistry leads to a round-the-world romance that becomes embroiled in a series of dangerous and outlandish incidents. <laughs> so <laughs> just go to writercentercomau slash win. Entries close on the 6th of May. And uh, if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry, just still go to writercentercomau slash win because there will be some other fantastic competition for you to enter. All right. Now, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I've had a little
1: break from the word of the week. (laughs) So I guess I'm ready. I guess I'm ready ready. to go. I'm ready to go again.
0: All right. The word is obelus. That's O-B-E-L-U-S, obelus.
1: Hmm. Ha. Ha, Ha -ha. yourself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you know that one?
1: I don't know
0: that one. I like I liked the look of it because it looks like, you know, did you read Asterix books when you were little? Yes. I loved Asterix so much. And best you know, best his best mate, what was his best mate's name? Obelix. Yes, Obelix. And it's I just thought, oh, it looks just like Asterix best mate's name, but it's not. It doesn't. It, it doesn't says. look anything like it. It's got totally different last letters. It's in yeah, the same The first author. letters are the same. Yeah, all right. Okay. All right. But <laughs> did you know that an obelisk is the term for the symbol you use for divided by. You know, the dot and then the hyphen and then the dot underneath? No. That's an that's an obelisk. Is it? Yes, the divided there by you sign. Go. I had no But idea. it was used. Um, used in ancient manuscripts, like that that symbol, mm. were apart from being the symbol for divided by, um, mm. it was used in ancient manuscripts to point out spurious, corrupt, doubtful, or superfluous words or passages.
1: Mm. Ah, do they use it on Wikipedia? I'd imagine it would probably appear quite a lot on Wikipedia.
0: Quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's an obelisk.
1: There you go. Well, there you go. Now you the can we
0: do, sleep.
1: I can, yep, I'm very happy now.
0: Thanks for that, Val. <laughs> all right, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Our writer in residence is Renee Knight. Had a good old chat with Renee who spoke to us from the UK. She wrote a book called The Secretary. Now, as soon as I saw this book, because she previously, her her debut novel was um, Disclaimer, which went exceedingly well. It was a uh, best-selling book. And so when I saw The Secretary, I was intrigued because I've always been, I don't know, I always think that, It's such an underrated profession because I believe secretaries and certainly good PAs just know the secrets, the deepest, darkest secrets of the people that they work for. And the kind of things that they are privy to is is mind boggling. And so I thought, oh, that's an interesting premise for a book. And it's a cracker. It's a cracker of a book. It's a It's a psychological thriller, and uh, Renee worked as a documentary maker for the BBC before moving on to the world of writing. And um, it's been a few years since Disclaimer, uh, which became a Sunday Times number one bestseller, and this is her second novel. So let's have a chat to Renee. Thank you so much for joining us today, Renee.
2: It's my pleasure. My pleasure. Lovely to meet you.
0: Now, congratulations on your second novel, The Secretary, and thank you also for talking to us all the way from London. Uh, Just for Mm -hmm. some of the listeners who haven't read the book yet, can you tell us what it's about?
2: Yes, it's basically about um, a long-term relationship, so nearly a 20-year relationship between a personal assistant, a secretary, and her female boss who is a um, a senior executive in a um, supermarket company, but she's also a sort of television celebrity with her own um, sort of food program. And Christine Butcher is her obedient servant. So the book really is about what it becomes about, the blurred lines between that professional relationship and a friendship and the sort of enmeshed lives of a personal assistant and the person she works for. So in Christine's case, she's very much part of Mina Appleton, her boss's life. So she's involved in finding nannies for the children. She's um, invited to Mina's home, um, always for work, but in a way what it it does sort of blur the lines in their relationship. Um, and Christine has an overwhelming need to be needed so gradually as the book goes on her life becomes more and more defined and caught up in meaners. and that's what it's like is how far you'd go really for the person you work for
0: Mm. now I have to ask have you ever been a secretary or a personal assistant
2: I have I was a secretary for many years actually um (laughs) When I first started um, working, my working life was as a secretary and I was a temp. I'm not sure whether you have temps over there, yes, yes. but I, w- I worked for an agency. Um, but one of my first jobs was actually at the BBC. So I stayed there for years, actually, moving from one department to another. But I wasn't a sort of, I was never a, a PA in the sense that um, Christine is. I, I wasn't involved in that sort of one-to-one really looking after one person I was more of a shorthand typist who made teas and coffees mm-hmm. but I know what it's like to yes. be in that position where you're sort of you know you're there to do as you're told basically
0: how did the idea for this book form what was the how did the premise come into your brain what made you want to explore this you know these themes
2: they're, in this country, I'm not sure whether you've had similar cases in America, but over over the years there have been quite a few sort of high-profile cases that have been on the front pages, actually, of the newspapers of PAs and secretaries who have been in court. Either, and there was a case about two years ago, of two PAs who were sisters, actually, to... Um, it was this particular case was with Nigella Lawson, and they were accused of taking money from credit cards um, that they'd been given for business use. Um, but uh, in the end, they were acquitted. Um, but actually what emerged were the, were the details of, the, of the, the sort of how involved they were in her life and how much they knew of the family. And then there was another case just before that um, of a secretary who was on, who was accused of perverting the cause of justice along with her boss. And she was accused of destroying evidence and documents to cover up for her boss. Um, and again, it was, you know, it was a long professional relationship. And I was, it was less the crimes that interested me, but more that what felt like a quite old fashioned sort of master servant relationship in a way, but with very blurred lines. And I think that was sort of, in a way, it was like a contemporary master servant, where there's almost where the boss is almost apologetic for and hiding their authority. But actually in the end, they're they're the same relationships. One is a master, one is a servant. But it sort of felt felt to me like it was slightly less clear these days, actually
0: mm. And so you've written this in first person. In the voice of Christine Butcher, who is the secretary or the personal assistant to the bigwig, and it's it's such a convincing voice, and it's such an intriguing one, and it's it it also depicts what goes on, you know, the the intimacy and the the level of um, you know integration you have into your boss's life. What did you do to Research what someone like Christine would do and think and feel.
2: I mean, part of it was actually just putting myself in that position. Um, you know, what would I feel like if I, if I were in that position? Which is not to say that Christine Butcher is me in any way, but <laughs> but I also did interview. Um, I was put in touch through friends with with two very senior personal assistants um, to quite prominent people and i talked to them actually at length again which is not to say that they are christine butcher Mm -hmm. but i was surprised by um, some of the things actually with with former employers that they were expected to do um, and also their ability to keep secrets actually that how that was just an absolutely vital part of their job and without that in a way they had no value um, you know, that there was a sort of unwritten rule that you you don't say anything.
0: Mm. And to that, anybody. And that
2: you know, things um, like so I just spent some...
0: No, sorry, you go on.
2: No, I was just um don't no, don't worry. You you carry on. Carry on. <laughs> no, I was just I can't saying... remember what I was gonna say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was um saying that uh, these people do think that it is their job or they, they almost convince themselves... well, they do convince themselves it is their job to technically pervert the course of justice because they just think that they're doing what is um what they're meant to do what their responsibility is because their responsibility is their loyalty to their to their boss right so it, it is an interesting dynamic to explore um how, did you know the when you started writing it or thinking about writing it did you know the plot did you know what was going to happen? Did you know what was going to unfold, or did you kind of just kind of start writing and see what happens?
2: No, I would never do that. I'd never have the courage to do that. Actually, just to sort of plunge right in. So I do always plot something else loosely. I sort of I try and work out um, a kind of three act structure really. So I know what happens in the beginning, the sort of inciting incident, if you like, and then I work out what happens in the middle. And then I have a, an idea of what will happen at the end. And so I do a very sort of rough roadmap, but I don't necessarily stick to it. So it's really just to sort of lead me through the narrative. But then I often find um, that when you get to a certain point, you think, no, 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 that couldn't happen because you've understood your character more. The more you write, the more you unearth things in your character. And the more, they don't dictate the story, but... When you know them well, there are certain things they just wouldn't do or there are certain things that they would do. And so that does alter your plot as you go along. And the Mm. end, I had a sort of rough idea for the end. But when I got to the end, I changed it because I thought, no, 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 she wouldn't do that. She'd do this. Mm. So getting to know your
0: character and developing your character, you've said that you've put yourself into her shoes but you're not Christine and you said that you've spoken to some (laughs) high-level PAs but they're not Christine. How did you form Christine? Like, how did you determine what kind of character she was going to be and what kind of decisions she was going to make? Because I find her intriguing.
2: I suppose I I needed her to be, in a way, increasingly isolated. I didn't want to fall into a cliché of having her married to her job in in as much as, you know, I didn't want her to be an unmarried woman with no children and that her whole life was just her job but actually in a way that so she is so she does have a a husband and she does have a child and in a way I wanted her you know these were things in a way that she ended up sacrificing and that the more she became tied to Christine and the greater her need in a way she just she becomes sorry by Mina she's defined by Mina and once she's defined by Mina and Mina's need of her she sheds unwittingly actually and unconsciously these other aspects of her life so and I did feel she needed to be more and more solitary and isolated and cut off so that when she does make these dubious decisions um, to support Mina she's really not aware she as you say she's feeling she's she's doing this is her job Mm. you know her job is first and foremost to be loyal um, and to support Mina to support her boss um, and so she doesn't really see it when she crosses a line and she increases, increasingly crosses lines as her career goes on.
0: It's, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating look into this kind of psyche. Now, your previous novel, so your first novel is Disclaimer, which uh, was ridiculously successful and you're, um, it's now being written into uh, a script for Fox Searchlight. Uh, can you just give some listeners, in case they haven't read that, just a brief um, idea of what Disclaimer is about? Because that, it's, it's mind-blowing in itself, this premise.
2: <laughs> well, the premise is um, basically what it would be like if you came across yourself in a book. So the, the character picks up the book. She's just moved home. She has a pile of books next to her bed. The house is in a bit of a mess. She picks up a book to help her get to sleep basically and as she starts reading she realizes that the central character in the book is her and the plot involves something that is is, a, is her secret actually and that she thought nobody living knew about um and so the book is really it's from her point of view and it's from the point of view of the person who's written the book and um basically you you're uncovering what is it that she's done what is it that's happened um so yes it's you know what would it what would it be like if you and also for me books have always been such a great comfort and that thing of picking picking up the book um on your bedside table and allowing it to sort of lull you into sleep mm. is such a lovely thing so for that invasion really of your privacy and your safe place just felt horrifying to me
0: have you always wanted to write psychological thrillers are they your thing if you you know is, is that what you, you really love doing
2: I didn't set out to to write. Uh, Psychological thrillers, yes. I mean, both these books are also being sold as crime novels. And I I certainly, and they both have crimes in them, but I didn't set out to write um, crime novels. But I have always been drawn to sort of dark material, actually. Even as a child, um, I loved watching. When I was quite young, I'd watch not sort of gory horrors, but sort of unsettling dark dramas and thrillers and that sort of thing and I loved reading ghost stories when I was little and so yes it's always been there my (laughs) my leaning to the dark side yeah
0: have you um can you give us a bit of an idea just so that listeners can understand kind of a timeline of when you first came up with the idea how long it took you to write um and then and then the process from there how long in the editing process and so on
2: yes absolutely I mean it was different with both books so the first book um, disclaimer I, um, I did have an agent by then I'd written a book actually before disclaimer which got me an agent but didn't get published um, and then that book actually was It wasn't autobiographical but there were elements in it that were close to a friendship that I'd had at school and a friend I still have actually who who lives in America now and when I was finishing that book I suddenly thought oh god I had an agent what if it got published and I sent it off to her to read and while and she took ages to read it and while I was waiting for her to come back to me I had this idea of how awful it would be if you came across yourself in a book that was published um and then and so that idea just sort of came to me and chilled me and I then started a creative writing course actually um once the first book wasn't published I'd heard about this course and I thought well I'm going to do that um you know it might just sort of get me back on my horse again and I started writing Disclaimer um on this course so i and the course was six months so i wrote half of the book while i was on the course and then i finished it um six months later so it was about a year for that first book Mm -hmm. and then it did get published and then the second one i was under contract so i got a two book deal and it felt very different i felt much more pressure Mm -hmm. actually with the second one because you suddenly you have a deadline, which I'm afraid I missed several times. Really? And, uh, <laughs> yes. By I'm a lot? I did. Uh, by months and months, yeah. Really? I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, there's a bit a bit of a gap between disclaimer and the secretary, probably a longer gap, ideally, than the publisher would have liked, although they were very patient. Um, so although I had the idea for the secretary, it took me quite a while to write myself into it, Um because I felt suddenly I was being observed with the first yeah. one you write, even though I was on a writing course, I was nobody's. Nobody has any expectations. Nobody's really waiting for it. Whereas the second one, you feel you're being watched slightly. Yeah. Um, and I wrote it. It's in first person now, the secretary, but I originally wrote it in the third person. And I did oh. two drafts like that. So it was quite. Wow. So I you then did two sort of drafts. rewrote the whole. Oh my god. Yes. And I knew as I was doing it, I should have followed my gut because I felt. I was kept going down blind alleys and write, you know writing myself into a corner yeah. um, and then when I started writing in the first person, then I thought, oh no, this is it, this is working now um, really? so I wrote about five drafts of it in all, and of course second time round you you have editors, yes. which the first time I didn't I mean the book was I mean it was edited later, but it was pretty complete when they bought it um, and so then you're very. Sure, what you have, and so when somebody comes up with a good, I- good idea, you can see it. If they come up with a suggestion that you think, no, that's not a good idea, you see it. Whereas, actually, with the second one, um, because the editing process, which is a great thing to have, I'm not knocking it, but if you give in your book too soon, before you're really clear about what it is, it's harder to kind of sift through what's a good idea and what's a bad idea, and so you end up trying all sorts of things that might not work.
0: <laughs> so if you wrote your first drafts... But I two think we drafts, got there at the end. Yeah, but if you wrote your first two drafts in third person, obviously you knew something wasn't quite right uh, mm-hmm. and therefore you changed to first person. How soon after changing into first person, like how much had you written at, at that you felt, oh, this is it, you know,
2: this is what I've got to do? Oh, the first chapter, first page even. I just knew straight away... <laughs> But so, them, well, yes, you might well ask, why didn't
0: you think about six e- months before? Exactly, anyway. that's my question. What did, did you not think before?
2: Oh, well, I'll just try it? Because, to... yeah, when I when I wrote it in the third person, it delivered a twist. So there's a twist when you reveal who the narrator is, and so I think I was too. I was. I fell under the pressure of feeling, this is a thriller. I've got to deliver, you know, as many twists as I can, which is a mistake, I think. It's contrived, and the twists will come. And some books have more twists than others. Um, and so that's why I was sort of determined to try and make that work. And it didn't work. I was trying to be too clever, actually. Um, because in the end, you have to have an authentic voice. And, I, you know, I, I like reading books where I really believe in the characters. I'm much more interested in character than... thrill of endless twists Mm. um but that's why I plodded on with it because I was slavishly trying to come up with a a, you know another twist.
0: Wow and so when you were in the depths of writing it whether in first or third person um uh (laughs) did you have any kind of writing routine I mean you obviously had a deadline which you didn't meet but but um did you did you you had to obviously achieve certain number of words by a certain point? Did you have a word count mm. goal, or did you, you know, what was the structure of your day to get stuff done?
2: Well, my structure is I always start writing in the morning. So if I don't write in the mornings and I leave it to the afternoon, I just don't get anything done. So mm. my structure is you know up breakfast, go up to I write. At the moment, I write in um, a sort of shed, a little. Well, a nice shed in the garden. So I'm sort of leaving the house and going up to my office. And then I set a goal of a thousand words a day. And actually, the first draft, I was writing more than that, actually. It was too long. I was just writing and writing and writing. And I think I was making the mistake of trying to write myself into it. Um, And so I was doing more than a thousand words a day. But actually, if it's going well, it'll be about a thousand words a day. Um, And I'll tend to work, I work up to lunchtime, have a break for lunch. If it's going well, and I really know where I'm going, I'll get on with it and carry on through the afternoon, but not always. And I think on average, probably, there's three good hours of proper work, of constructive work, where you're sort of moving the story on. And often, if, if, if you sort of, well, for me anyway, if I push it for too long, I end up rewriting it all the next day. And then really? you just get stuck. Yeah. I mean, so three three good hours I think of, of constructive work, I can get a lot done.
0: Yes. So do you measure that by hours or by a feeling of satisfaction or by a word count? Like a bit of both. You, actually. I mean I'll,
2: I'll, Yeah, I'll I'll aim for a thousand words. I'll try and right. get a thousand words done. Um, but it, often it is an instinct, it's a feeling. And if if you're in the middle of it and you're feeling this is going well, then I would just carry on, yeah. But if I've got stuck somewhere, then I know what I do after that, it's just gonna be rubbish. Um, (laughs) But I do like to have an idea of where I'm gonna, what I'm gonna be doing the following morning. So when you wake up, you think, okay, this is the scene I'm gonna crack. This is where I'm, you know, you know what you're doing.
0: Do you write in a linear fashion? Like when you say that you have, you kind of do have an idea of the beginning, middle and end, do you write in that order uh, and and do you have just like a synopsis or actually even scene by scene index cards like how what level of detail do you have
2: well i do write in a linear way yes so i do write from the beginning through to the end i don't have index cards i sort of type out basically i have sort of a sheet of almost like a treatment so i won't do i won't break it down into chapter into chapters I think of it more as scenes actually so you know there'll be the scene where Christine is in court the scene where you know that sort of thing and it'll probably be it could be a sort of I don't know six page document um, little this happens this happens this happens but not written I don't put in too much detail otherwise I think there's a danger I will feel like I've written the book before I've written it Um, it's really a very sketchy outline of you know this happens here this happens here very badly written, but really just a sort of a list of events in a way, without so, much detail. the
0: The main characters, well and many of the characters, but certainly the main characters in this book are very strong, which are Christine and her boss Mina. Do you to get to know them, you know, kind of like what we started talking about before, do you, are they just fully formed in your brain or do you have something like a a backstory document or, you know, like, like details that aren't necessarily in the book but help you get to know your character better? Do you create anything like that?
2: Yes, I do actually. I mean, I do have a sense. Yeah, I do. So I know their childhoods. I know roughly what happened to them at school. I know what their previous careers might have been, um bit about their relationships. Yes, I do. So there will be so I do try and fill them out as much as I can before I start. But then you you do. It is it's a bit of you're sort of excavating them as well as you go along. You're sort of unearthing things that emerge. So it's as much as building up a story, you're sort of stripping layers away too, so you get to the heart of something, or that's the idea at least.
0: And apart from doing research like talking to the two high-level PAs that you spoke to, did you have to do any other kind of research either about corporate life or about the court system or police procedure or anything like that in order to be able to write your book authentically?
2: Yes, I did a a bit. My sister actually was very helpful because she used to work for – Supermarket. so she helped me a bit oh. with the background there and the relationship between <laughs> suppliers yeah. and uh supermarkets so she was very helpful oh, with that's that handy. and there is a scene, <laughs> yes exactly and there is a scene in the book actually of a of a moment that that she told me about which i found heartbreaking when she told me about it so i sort of put that in of um as, as she remembers walking actually through the reception area of head office she didn't have a particularly senior job, actually, but she walked through head office and saw this elderly man sitting there with a box of fruit on his oh. lap, waiting to show, um, you know, somebody senior, because mm-hmm. I think he was about to be sort of dumped as a supplier. And and I did spend some time at the Old Bailey following a particular court case, which I found fascinating, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sat in the public gallery um and watched a a case it was towards the end of a case actually and I was stunned actually by how tiny the courtroom was and how much eye contact there could be between sort of jurors and members of the people sitting up in the public gallery actually perfect strangers and just just how intimate it all was and and therefore so intense that you really you know it's it is a little theatre. I know it's a cliche to say it but it is a little theatre and their, and it was during the summer, actually, and there were people who, you know, members of the public who were obviously regulars, who, you know, turned up with their rucksacks with their packed lunches in, and the, the guards all knew them, and they'd go in, and they'd sit in their seats, and they would just sit and watch these people's lives, you know, hear the detail, intimate details of these people's lives. I found it fascinating, actually. And then afterwards, you would see... Um, you know, I saw the accused coming out and, you know, getting into their taxes and going off and getting on the tube. And I found all that sort of detail fascinating. So, yes, I did spend a few weeks doing that.
0: What was the hardest thing about writing this book?
2: The hardest thing? uh, I found Christine's head quite a difficult place to be in, actually. And so it's very, she's so regretful. You know, it is a book about somebody looking back at their lives, and she's full of regret, and she wishes she'd done things differently, and that's very sad, actually. Um, and so, I found that quite difficult. And in a way, I also, I wanted it to be not about the crimes. And so, this is a crime novel that, although there is there are crimes in it. It's not really about the crimes. It's about a sort of toxic relationship Mm -hmm. and it's about an abuse of power. Um, And it's sort of about what happens when you don't listen to people. Um, I think sort of bubbling away in there, which I wasn't conscious of at the time, was probably a little bit of, you know, what we're going through at the moment in this country, our sort of Brexit nightmare. Mm -hmm. Um, What happens when there's a whole section of the population that just is not listened to and... And what that means and how that feels if you feel you're somebody who's not heard or you thought your life was one way only to discover it's another. You know, you're not who you thought you were, that your identity is stripped away. Mm. Um, And so it was quite a a dark place to be at times, actually. Everyone in my family is very relieved that I finished this
0: book. Uh, Well, that comes (laughs) to my second question then. Apart from actually finishing the book, what was the most enjoyable thing about it? or most rewarding thing about writing? Them.
2: I think with writing, I mean, there's a lot of, there are a lot of, there's a lot of time for me anyway, when you feel, Oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. But those moments when it feels like it is coming together and you have got to know your character and the story is really taking shape. I do find that exhilarating actually. Um, and so I, and, so, yeah, th- those are the most exhilarating. Those are the most enjoyable moments, actually, when you finally feel, particularly with this one, because I wrote so many drafts when you've, and there's a point sort of halfway through, I remember thinking, I'm never going to get there. And then when you do get there, it, it feels great, actually. You feel you've done it and you feel, you know, I've done it as well as I possibly can. Somebody else might have done it differently, but this is how I want to do it. Um, and, and I've done that. And that that's, Yes, there's a sense of satisfaction and enjoyment in that.
0: And what's next for you? Are you on novel number three?
2: Well, I have started thinking about it and I've got a rough idea. So I've started doing a little bit of research. Um, it's it's, a, it's an idea, really, of particular relationships. So I'm interested in a sort of adult brother-sister-sibling relationship, actually, um, and then primarily with a... One of them, I think probably the sister who has to give, I mean, the moment, the beginning will be her having to give something up, a major thing because of her brother. Something I read in the papers recently, actually, where a high profile woman had to stand down from a big promotion because it turned out there was a conflict of interest with her brother's job. And it made me think, gosh, I bet that's happened throughout their lives since they were little when there have been moments when either he or she have had to step back and and give up something for the other. And I just thought how you're really locked in with a sibling, aren't you? Then it's likely to be the longest relationship in your life, actually. Mm, Um, And and how often if you have siblings, you do regress, actually, as an adult into those patterns that you had when you were five, you know, so I'm exploring that at the moment, but I'm still trying to work out the story, actually. So I would do that, but I would hope to start writing this summer. That's my, that's my goal.
0: Right. So when you say you're still working out the story, and presumably you did this with the secretary as well, you have the seed of an idea, and then you think, of, do, you, do you let it percolate for a while until you have the loose plot before you start writing? Is that what happens? Yes.
2: Yes, that's what what I I think probably with the secretary I started writing too soon if I'm honest, uh, which is why I think I got in a pickle with the third with the third person and all that. Um, and this time I'm determined to just pin down that story. Um, not necessarily write a very detailed outline, but just to pin down the major plot points. You know, work out what their jeopardy is. What is it these people have to lose? You know, how they're going to get it back before I actually start the detail of writing it.
0: Mm. And finally, what's your advice for aspiring writers, like your top three tips to aspiring writers who hope to be in a position like where you are one day?
2: I think that my three would be I remember somebody said this to a, who came to, another writer came and talked to us during the um, writing course that I did. And she said you have to have both a thick skin, and a thin skin and i think that's absolutely right i mean i when my first book was not published mm. i remember thinking if i'm going to carry on and do this i'm going to have to have a very thick skin but at the same time you it's got to be thin enough for you to be able to be able to empathize to mm. to understand your characters to absorb things around you so i think that is one tip i would have you know mm-hmm. manage your skins And the the second one, I think, is keep the faith, actually, because I think certainly I have found along the way there are many days where you feel particularly with a first draft. I think it's accept that a first draft is not necessarily going to be very good and it may not be something that you want to show to anyone else. But that's absolutely fine. Just keep the faith and rewrite and rewrite. Because for me, the writing is in the rewriting And the third one, which I think was the most important thing I advice I was given is, again, don't show your work too soon. So get your first draft done. Put it away in a drawer. Leave it for as long as you can bear it. I mean, if you're under a deadline, that might well be limited and then take it out and read it again. And you will see things in it that you hadn't spotted before. Um, It will be obvious the things you want to change and then rewrite but I think having allowing yourself that space between first draft and then rewriting is really important. And as I say, not showing it too soon because then you get lots of other people's voices in your yes. head, and that can really interfere. Follow your gut, it's your instinct, your you know your your own self will be able to tell you when something doesn't feel right and it's not working, but you do need a bit of space between first draft and second draft for that.
0: Great I advice, think. great advice. And on that note, Congratulations on the secretary. It is a must read and thank you so much for your time today, Renee.
2: Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week find out more at writerscenter.com.au slash creative writing There we go, Renee Knight and uh, yeah, cracker of a book Sounds great Yeah, now, we want to remind everyone Vivid, Vivid is coming up we are part of the official program so you want to be a writer live live at the Museum of Contemporary Art it's going to be awesome if you want to Grab tickets, then go to writercentercomau dot AU slash vivid ideas dot mm. AU slash vivid ideas and Alison and I will see you on Saturday the eighth of June at the Museum of Contemporary Art as part of the official program of Vivid. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous room, fantastic space, overlooks Sydney Harbour and it's going to be fantastic because we've got Candace Fox, number one New York Times bestseller, who's going to be there, Pamela Freeman, who also writes under Pamela Hart, who is an incredible font of wisdom about the world of writing and, and creative writing, and, of course, Back. of course
1: <laughs> word of the week
0: <laughs> do you know we've
1: had several we've had several offers to create merch for us for some of these various ridiculous really? things <laughs> I feel we need some merch I' to talk about that at some
0: point that's all something. right all right uh there we go so what are you doing in the coming week al
1: oh just well you know I'm just gonna have to Sort myself out. I I have to actually get my head back in the game because my head has been out of the game entirely. Mm. And so I'm going to be doing that. I'm sure something else exciting that I'm doing, but I can't think of anything at the moment. So it'll be there'll be something. I don't know what. We'll talk about it next week.
0: Okay. Good. All right. (laughs) That sounds
1: good. What about Um, you? What are you
0: doing? Uh, what am I doing? I've got a few things to do in Melbourne. So I'm going to be heading there for a brief visit and then I'll be back also sorting myself out. I did this Instagram story this week on my messy, um, you know, working area. Mm -hmm. And one kind listener, thank you so much for replying to my Instagram story, just wrote the words, pick up, put down, treat.
1: (laughs) 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 Sounds like something Procrastipop
0: would relate to. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Fetch treat. Bench, <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> thank you for that um, wonderful piece of sage advice. That's uh, I, I actually, you know, <laughs> I actually did that, and the treat was cronuts. Mm. Cronuts. Yeah, don't you love cronuts? Oh my god, Not we've really. had the best cronut place near me. But I digress. Thank you for listening, everyone. Um, where do we find you online, Al? Uh, You'll find me
1: at alisontait.com, a double dot You'll find me on Twitter at at Al A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram
0: at Alison Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye.